Thanks for tuning in to the Met Church Podcast. Here at the Met, we are all about connecting people to God and one another. If you have any questions or want more information about what's going on here at the church, then head to our website at metchurch.com. We would love to stay connected with you throughout the week through social media, so be sure to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Now, enjoy the message. Well, it's uh, customary, I think, for a guest speaker to very kindly and sweetly look over the crowd and say good morning. But I'm a Texas boy, and I think a lot of you are Texas people. So would you give me a Texas welcome? Just say howdy. Howdy. Delighted to see you. Uh, We're going through tough times as a nation. The pandemic, the election's been rough. Lots of people talking like, how can we keep it all together? So I talked to Bill a couple months ago when we was discussing uh, what I would do this morning and decided to do a message. It's one of my favorites. It's a Bible message, how to keep it together when it seems to be falling apart. Let me begin this way. Wouldn't it be great if when you became a Christian that nothing bad ever happened in your life? I mean, it's like God put this invisible shield around you and nothing could get to you. Just because you're a Christian, you've always got a job you love, your marriage is an eternal honeymoon, amen? Your kids are always perfect. Uh, Nothing around your house ever breaks down. Weeds won't even grow in your yard and nobody in your family ever gets sick or ever dies. Well, that would be a great recruiting tool for Christianity but we know it's not true. Christians are not excused from tough times. Difficulties are a part of humanity. We know bad things happen to good people. So the question in our lives, all of us, is not if difficulties will come. The question is, how do I relate to those difficulties? How do I keep it together when it seems to be falling apart? So we're gonna let James be our biblical guide this morning. If you have your Bible, James is over toward the right side end of your Bible right after Hebrews. We'll start in chapter one. And in the first verse, James will talk to you about he is writing to a scattered people, Jewish Christians scattered around the Roman world under the Roman empires. Uh, Guys like Nero and Domitian who sometimes made Christianity the butt of their mistakes and they paid the price. Sometimes they were killed in the arenas and coliseums. Sometimes they were just hunted down and murdered. It was dangerous to be a Christian. Christians serve God underground. You have read or maybe heard about the catacombs. They met underground, buried their dead underground. It was dangerous to be a Christian. So James is writing to hurting Christians, telling them how to keep it together when it seems to be falling apart. All right, chapter one, verse one. If you don't have your Bible, the words are on the screen. This letter is from James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm writing to the 12 tribes, Jewish believers scattered abroad, greetings. Then verse two, dear brothers and sisters, when troubles come your way. Now, read it, thinking about it. He's talking to hurting people. When troubles come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy? Come on, James. I mean, how do you make sense out of that? 
When I'm in all kinds of trouble, I'm considered that joy. Well, bookmark the word joy. We're going to come back to this joy toward the closing of the message. Now look at verse 3. For you know that when your faith is tested, your patience has a chance to grow. Now over the next few verses, keep patience in mind. Then James gives three examples of patience. He talks about the farmer. He talks about the Old Testament prophets. And then he talks about Job. And each of them are example about patience in tough times. First of all, let's pick the farmer up. Consider the farmers who patiently wait for the rains in the fall and the spring. They eagerly look for the valuable harvest to ripe. Now, there's something different about this farmer than what we know today. There's a lot of things that are out of his control. We'll talk about it in just a second. Then second, we talk about the prophets. Well, first of all, verse eight, sorry, don't wanna miss that. You too must be patient, take courage, for the coming of the Lord is near. Now, let's talk about the prophets, verse 10. For examples of patience and suffering, dear brothers and sisters, take the prophets, get the next sentence, who spoke in the name of the Lord. These are distinct people with distinct jobs, distinct responsibilities, who spoke in the name of the Lord. And we give great honor to those who endure under suffering. And then he gives the third example. For instance, you know about Job, a man of great patience. And you can see how the Lord was kind to him in the end, for the Lord is far of tenderness and mercy. Now, don't you find it rather strange that writing to hurting people, James's best advice, six times, be patient. The word means to wait, hang on. Means in our vernacular to idle your motor when you feel like stripping your gears. But you guys, we live in a different culture. Uh, patience is not where it's at in America. It's a hard sell in America. We're more characterized in our lives by the little Nike advertising slogan, just do it. That's us. We want action now. We want solutions now. We want the problem solved right now. That's the reason because we are so impatient. We have instant printing, next day delivery, fast food, and I'm on a roll. Your bookkeeper might use QuickBook. Your phone might be Sprint. Your orange juice might be Minute Made. Your package might be delivered by Federal Express. Some of your food might be instant pudding. Your diet might be slim, fast. Your chocolate might be Nestle's quick. Your pictures could be taken to one hour photo, run your car through the 10 minute lube. At the airport, you can get the rapid shuttle. At the hotel, you get a quick check-in. And if you go for a swim, wear your Speedo. <laughs> because we are impatient. In the middle of a mall, there was this one in a little stall and there was a little sign hung up that said, ears pierced while you wait. <laughs> well, yes, that's the only way you can do that. But it's just a statement of how impatient we are. And on your television, they say, we'll get rid of your headache fast. And we'll take care of your upset stomach fast. And we'll clear your skin up fast. 
And the problem is in this world of impatience, we want emotional cures and spiritual cures the same way. And James steps in and says, no, 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 be patient. Hmm. And then he gave those three examples. First of all, the farmer. The farmer teaches us that some circumstances in our lives are beyond our control. Now we're talking about a first century farmer. We're not talking about a 21st century farmer. A first century farmer, he has no electricity, he has no irrigation system, he has no mechanized equipment. He might have an ox, he, he would have a, a rudimentary plow that he could pull and turn the ground over, then he plants by hand and covers it up by hand, and then that's as far as he can go. He doesn't control the rain, he doesn't control the sun, he must wait upon God. And James is saying, now Jerry, in your life, there's some circumstances you can't control. When your wife, Freddie, goes to the store, you can't control whether somebody in the road might hit her. And you don't control diseases, and you don't control the economy. There's some things that are out of your hand. Be patient, wait upon God. And then the Old Testament prophets teach us that sometimes God asks us to play hurt. Uh, take our prophets as an example of patience in suffering, James said. These were God's best people. These were God's spokesmen. But man, when you read about them, they had a tough life. You would expect God's spokesmen to be sheltered. But if you read the book of Ezekiel, that brilliant young priest who was carried by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, when he came and just destroyed the temple and the city and took hundreds and thousands of refugees back to the city of Babylon and they were camped out along a river and God had Ezekiel as their prophet. If you read the book of Ezekiel, you come to chapter 24 and a pain gets in your heart because God said, Ezekiel... Uh, I'm going to take your wife. He described her as the desire of his eyes. She must have been a beautiful girl. And he said, Ezekiel, I don't want you to go to the memorial, and I don't want you to eat the food of mourning, and I don't want you to wear the clothes of mourning. So in chapter 24, it says, So I did as I was commanded, and at even my wife died, and I did the next day as I was commanded. God asked him to play hurt. Daniel was taken hostage. You remember Daniel from your Sunday school in the lion's den? One of the greatest men in history, served under four world rulers, under two world empires, the Babylonian and the medial Persian empires. But he was taken as a teenager away from everything he'd known in his life and he never got back to his holy city of Jerusalem. And Elijah is probably the greatest prophet in the Old Testament, yet he got so discouraged he said, God, I'm the only one left who loves you. And we just called Jeremiah the weeping prophet. Now guys, all of these people were walking in the will of God, but they were suffering. God asked them to play hurt. Uh, Bill didn't mention, but I pastored in Odessa 36 years. And during those years, for 25 of them, I was chaplain of the Odessa Permian High School football team, which is the winningest team in Texas in the 70s and 80s. In the first part of the 90s, Mojo. 
And so I was around athletics a lot. And my son is a coach in Granbury where Freddie and I live. And so I've been around he and, and the girls that play for him in his basketball team. And, and I know some Odessa, Coach Wilkins and Coach Tam Hollingshead and another of our coaches. And my son would say, Dad, she's such a great girl. She doesn't quit the game when it's painful to play. She doesn't quit the game every time she's hurt. Uh, sometimes God asks us to play hurt. That Bible you hold in your lap, in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, who's arguably the greatest Christian who's ever lived, wrote at least 13 books of the New Testament of your Bible. So you think a guy like that would just be exalted and carried through life. But in 2 Corinthians, the book he wrote, chapter 12, he's kind of coming before God. And he said, three times I went to the Lord and the greatest Christian who ever lived said, God, please. He didn't tell what the problem was. He just described it. He said, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh a messenger of Satan. He said, it's like the devil has taken aim and the devil is relentless and he never lets go. And he said, it buffets me, it beats me. It's a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan that beats me every day. And he went to God, he said, three times and said, God, please take it away. And I can hear his argument. God, I could write better if I didn't hurt so bad. God, I could serve you better. I could travel better through the shipwrecks and the beatings and all that Paul expressed. I could do it better if I didn't have this thorn in the flesh. So God, would you please take it away? And God said, no. No, Paul, I'm not going to take it away. See, when you're weak and you still love me, when you're weak and you still serve me, People know how real I am in your life. So I want you to play hurt. And Paul said, okay, so gladly will I suffer what I'm suffering because I know when I'm weak, you're strong. I pastored 36 years, as I mentioned, what became the largest church in our city. And I was constantly amazed at the people in our church who seemed like they just went from one problem to another problem and as their pastor, I was just astounded at their faith and their commitment to Jesus Christ and their love and their willingness to play hurt. The farmer says there's things that are beyond our control. The prophets say sometimes God asks us to play hurt. And then there's Job. Job tells us now there's things in life that you're never going to understand. The preacher can't explain it to you. You're not going to find the answer in the Bible. I don't know. Job was one of the greatest men, one of the richest men, and one of the most godly men, if not the most godly man on earth. Yet he lost it all. All 10 of his children were killed in, in ways that seemed like God caused it, winds, tornadoes, stuff like that. He lost all of his, he was one of the richest men in the world, and he lost all of his riches. And then he lost his health from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. There were boils, rolling, festering boils. And Job never understood. You read the book of Job, it's a magnificent poem. But Job is saying to his three friends who came to comfort him, so to speak, and they're saying, you did something wrong. There's, the only reason something like that would happen is that you did something wrong. And Job said, no, I, 
haven't done anything wrong. I don't understand what God is doing, but I know it's not because of what I've done wrong. And at the end of the book, God verified Job didn't do anything wrong. Sometimes God asks us to play hurt. And during all of this, Job was saying things like, shall I receive good from the Lord and not evil? The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And the book of Job says he never charged God foolishly. He didn't understand, but he didn't charge God. Hmm. So James said, be patient. And you might say, well, come on, Jerry. That's, you know, that seems like a cop-out answer. What is this patience for? Well, James is saying that the joy, two verses in what we read he said the joy, count it all joy when you fall into different troubles because in verse 7, he said, be patient as you wait for the Lord's return. And in verse 8 says, you too must be patient, take courage, for the coming of the Lord is near. What I want to do with you for the next few minutes, and let's talk about the joy of the first and the second coming of Jesus Christ. His first coming when he came as a babe in Bethlehem. His second coming when he comes to rapture those that are saved back to heaven. Let's talk about the joy. First of his first coming. 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ came to this earth for the first time. He came to a manger in Bethlehem. They missed him. They should not have missed him because Israel's greatest prophet, preacher, was probably Isaiah who said in chapter seven, the Lord himself will give us a sign, a virgin shall conceive. Well, if a virgin conceives, that's not man-made, that's God-made. A virgin shall conceive and care, bear a son. And when that son is born, he is Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. Uh, Mary. Have you ever thought about what a girl that was that God, who knows every particle of our being, chose her to be the mother of his son? It's an amazing thought. And she was engaged. How would you like to try to convince this young man that you're engaged to? I'm pregnant. But Mary, how could you? We have not. I know we haven't. Well, who did you do? I didn't do that with anyone. Then where did you get pregnant? And try to convince him that it was God? So God sent an angel, Gabriel, to Joseph and said this, do not be afraid to take Mary to be your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost, and shall she, she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. This child in Mary is God implanted in human who will bear a child and that child is God with us and that child is sent to save his people from their sins. And on that first Christmas Eve, do you remember the story, the shepherds in the field and an angel came and said to the shepherds, I bring you good tidings of great, you know the next word, joy. I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For there is born unto you this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And the joy was that God sent his son to this world to give Jerry Thorpe and to give you a chance to know God. 
Wow, a chance to have your sins forgiven. A chance to walk with God and when you die, to be taken with God to live forever. That's joy. And 2,000 years later after that birth, we're still singing. You will sing it next week, next month. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Why? Because he came to be our savior. Now James looked at his second coming and said, count it all joy because the Lord is coming again. So what is the joy of his second coming? You know something, guys, when I first worked on this message, I tried to put it in your thoughts. What, what would be your joy when the Lord comes? And I couldn't do it. I could only talk here. I can only tell you what it means to me that Jesus Christ is coming again. I'll give you three thoughts. Here's my joy. First of all, I will be in the presence of Christ. When he comes and raptures us, I will be in the presence of Christ. You remember the night before Jesus was crucified with his disciples? He said the words in John 14, first three verses. He said, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Everybody believes in God, not everybody believes in Jesus. If you wanna be saved, you don't just believe there's a God, you believe Jesus is the Son of God. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house in heaven, there are many dwelling places, many rooms. I'm going to prepare a place for you. Keep listening. And if I go, I will come again. This is the promise of Jesus Christ. You cannot discount the second coming of Christ without discounting Jesus Christ as being the Son of God. For he said, I will come again, and when I do, I will receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. In other words, Jerry, when I come, I'm gonna bring you to the presence of Christ. You're gonna be in his presence. Paul said to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And one other verse in Psalm 16, the psalmist said, you will show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. I just know that in prospect. See, I've been saved a long time. I got saved when I was a freshman in college. So I've been walking with the Lord. I'm 84 now, so I've been walking with the Lord a long time. I was 18 when I got saved. You know, I've sung about him. I've sung in the church the great songs. I've sung about him, but, but I've never been in his presence. I have read about him. I read my Bible every day, and I've read about Jesus Christ, but I've never been in his presence. And I prayed to him and, and felt his presence in, in the house of God, but I've never been in his presence. And I've heard preaching that's blessed me and lifted me up, but I've never seen him. But when the Lord comes, the joy to me is that I will be, and you who are saved will be, in his presence. I cannot remember the first time I've heard a lot of songs, but I remember the first time I heard Mercy Me's song, I Can Only Imagine. They made a movie out of that song. I can only imagine. I was preaching in Wichita. 
I'd never heard it and I'd prepared a message on the return of the Lord and I was sitting right there where this young lady is sitting before I came up to speak. And Nate Harmon, who was the music director of the church, got up, that song had just come out and I'd never heard it and he began to sing. Surrounded by your glory, what will my heart feel? Will I dance for you, Jesus, or in awe of you be still? Will I stand in your presence or to my knees will I fall? Will I sing hallelujah or will I able to be speak at all? I can only imagine. And I can only imagine what it will be like to be in the presence. But I think it will be joy. And my second joy is when I'm in his presence is that everything changes. Now, uh, the skeptic says, this is pie in the sky. The believer says, these are the words of the Lord. On your screen, Revelation 21, 4. And God shall wipe away all tears from our eyes. And this next one just, and there will be no more death. And he keeps writing, neither sorrow neither crying, neither shall there be any more pain. For the former things are passed away and I will make all things new. In 40 years of pastoring, tears and sorrow and crying and pain were a constant in the lives of our people. And we went through all that with Bill and Cindy. I never seen a guy's heart so totally broke because death, just, death's a constant enemy. Uh, my dad died July of 1999. I was sitting beside my dad holding his hand when he died. I was asking God not to take my daddy. But my daddy died. Hmm. Let me ask you a question. I'd like for you to raise your hand. How many of you, someone you love so much that you can't stand even yet, the fact that, that but they're, they were saved, they knew the Lord, they're in heaven, but man, you miss them every day. Would you raise your hand? How many like that? Wow. Yeah. Hmm. Two Sundays after dad died, I preached a message called Lessons I Learned from a godly father, and I, I said this about death. Now listen, I think you'd agree. Why do we gloss death over? And we do gloss it over. We pretty it up, and, and that's okay. I'm not arguing about any of that. But death's not pretty. Why pretend it is anything but what it is? Death is not our friend. Death is our enemy. It kicks down the door to our lives and takes from us people we love and need. Death has no mercy that you love them intensely, that you needed them greatly. Death does not care for your tears. It mocks your fears. It says your life is futile. It lays suspect to all you have done. But Jesus said, when I come, there will be no more death. I will be in his presence Everything changes. My last thought is there will be reunion. See, I believe in life after death for the saved, 
and for the unsaved. If you're here or listening this morning and you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, I believe in life after death for you if you never accept the Lord, but I don't believe in reunion for you. If I die without Christ, I, I live in eternity separated from God. But if you're saved, I believe in reunion. I believe I'll see my daddy again someday and my mama. If you believe you see your loved one again someday, say amen. amen. Absolutely, absolutely. Stephen Hawking, who's a British physicist and author and atheist, writing in You Say Today, dismissed the notion of life after death. He mocked it in these words. He said, I regard the brain as a computer which will stop working when its components fail. The brain is a computer which will stop working when its components fail. There is no heaven, he said. There's no afterlife for broken down computers. That is a fairy story for people afraid of the dark. Really, a fairy story? Mr. Hawking, do you believe this Bible is a fairy story for people afraid of the dark? Do you believe the life of Jesus is a fairy story for people afraid of the dark? Do you believe my dad's life was a fairy story who lived over 60 years serving Jesus Christ with every ounce of his being? Is his life just a fairy story? Is my life just a fairy story? I consider that appalling. By the way, Stephen Hawking has died since he wrote that. He considers that appalling now too. Here's what I find appealing, and we close with this verse. It's on your screen. Here's the way Paul said the second coming will take place. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven. He's not sending Gabriel. He's not sending Michael. It's the Lord's return. Jesus said, I will come again. He will descend from heaven. There will be a shout, the voice of the archangel, the trump of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. That means my dad and my mom and your loved one comes out of the grave. I heard a country preacher say one time, God gives them a six-foot head start. Okay, that's all right. And then, verse 17, we which are alive and remain, if we should be privileged to be alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord, shall be caught up together with them. I love that way that says that. My dad and mom come out, and I'm caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. He said, so comfort one another with these words. Find joy and comfort in the words of the presence of the Lord and everything changes and reunion. I close with this thought. I, I don't know, but used to in earlier days in my ministry, people used to say, what would you like to be doing when Jesus comes? Would you like to be preaching? And I'd say, no, I don't think so. Well, would you like to be like studying uh, would you like to be out visiting? No. Would you like to be praying? Uh, yeah, you know, that's a nice thought, but no. Really? What would you like to be doing? I'd like to be standing in that little cemetery, the Sunset Memorial Gardens in Odessa, Texas, with my family, and they're tending the grave and talking about mom and dad and how important they were, when all of a sudden in that cemetery, a trumpet blows. 
I heard a trumpet. What's a trumpet doing blowing out here? Then I hear a shout. And the voice of the archangel, maybe that says, come up hither. And all of a sudden, my dad and mom come out of that grave as perfect as God can make a man and a woman. And my dad with a huge smile, come on, Jerry. Come on, Freddie. We're going to meet Jesus. That's what I'd like to be doing when Jesus comes. And if I can't be there, I'd like to be with Bill when Cindy comes out of the grave. That will be a happy day. So I hope you're ready. I hope you know the Lord. And I hope the message has been an encouragement. How do you keep it together when you seems to be falling apart? The first coming and the second coming of Jesus Christ. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning in today with us. If you have any questions or prayer requests, please contact us so that we can follow up with you this week by visiting metchurch.com. We look forward to seeing you again next week.